Welcome to ACR Moonshot, the Advanced Cardiac Resuscitation Podcast, where we embrace a bold change in the way that we plan for and respond to sudden cardiac arrest in the pursuit of saving more lives. And now your host, Joe Powell and Billy Croft. All right, we're back. Uh, ACR Moonshot Podcast. I'm your host, Billy Croft, and I have a guest uh, host with me today, um, the uh Division Chief of EMS from Lawrence Douglas, Kansas, Fire EMS, awesome, kick butt, whatever. You got a long name, dude. You do have a long name. Lawrence Douglas County Fire Medical, LDCFM, because we're rebranding. It, it just rolls off of the, the tongue so well. So well. Yeah, it was all planned. It was yeah. a planned. How you doing, attack. man? I'm good. I'm good. Been a good week here in Denver. A lot of good instructors, a lot of good... Eats, uh, watched the championship, Denver beat the Miami Heat on Monday. Mm. So that was good. Or was it Tuesday? I don't even know now. It was Monday. Monday. It was Monday so, for sure. Yeah. And then... Parade today. Yeah, it's uh, hopefully we, we're not in that nonsense. It's right outside the hotel. Uh, we went uh, at bucket list for me. I don't know if it was for you. Was it for you last night? I've been night? there before, but... Yeah, put it, I put it in. I put it back in my bucket. So we got we have the we had the opportunity to go to Red Rocks Amphitheater, and we saw Whiskey Myers. That was fun. Yeah, was <laughs> except for all the stairs. There's a lot of stairs. There's a lot of elevation. There's a lot of altitude. There's a lot of heavy breathing and pit stops along the way. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of heavy. Yeah. I got lightheaded, dude. Yeah. Hey, let me stop right here, take a picture, and buy myself five minutes. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, so we've had some great guests um, this week, and um, we have a great guest with us today, uh, Adiel Garcia, who he, he I love his, his slides because he, he doesn't put, like, all of his, you know, um, certifications or anything. He just puts ambulance driver. <laughs> <laughs> And it makes me laugh every time because I love that humor, Adiel. I really do. Um, so why don't you introduce yourself and give us background of where you work and, you know, all that stuff. Sure. Well, uh, thank you for inviting me. It's always great to hang around with you and, and Kevin. Um, so I'm Adiel Garcia. I am the Division Chief of Education and Integrated Healthcare in Johnson County, Kansas. Um, I, I grew up in South Texas, so I'm a transplant to Kansas. Uh, I got into EMS as a combat medic in the military back in 1996. So it all started from there. And I, I like education. That's kind of what I do. And, and I'm not lying when I put ambulance driver on there. I, I have been. I, I don't do it as much anymore. Um, but I, I do... I have a passion, not necessarily to just share information. It needs to be the right information, right? Uh, so uh, I, I, I think that one of the things that sometimes lacks in different conferences in different parts of the world is somebody tells you something and people take notes and you never see a citation up there. So they're like, are they speaking from experience? Uh, not that the information's bad, but you, you need to know the source. You know, you, you need to know what it's based on because 
different sources have different weights, right? So that that is uh, something I've been deliberate about recently, about uh, putting my sources up there. And when I go to conferences, sometimes instead of taking uh, notes, I, I take a picture of the citation, right? Because that's, I think, our job as audience, me audience members to cross-check what the presenters are, are saying. But anyway, thank you for having me, Billy. It is a great pleasure to be with you guys here. Yeah, I, you know, I really appreciate your presentations. Um, you know, you're very transparent about all the information. It's very clear. Um, I can go look it up. Um, for me, uh, that, that holds a lot of weight, you know, and, um, it really drives home the fact of whatever point you're, you are making, um, that you have those things and you've done your research and that makes me want to listen even more to you. So I appreciate that greatly. And I love the way your mind, and we've talked about this. I love the way your mind works. Um, not so much Kevin, cause he's a <laughs> sick mother <laughs> I'm just nobody wants to be in here that's for sure there's enough people in here <laughs> you shut up yeah, yeah. stop what i'm talking mm. to you you can always talk to yourself that's the best thing but i find you can always talk to yourself as long as you never say what'd you say <laughs> <laughs> so um kevin you you have um, a pretty good long-standing relationship with idl yeah so it's been seven or eight years that uh, we've known each other and how it really started was I was fortunate enough to be on the hiring panel that um, that's that started with um, one of the when their training chief had retired and so they were looking for a search and they did a nationwide search and it was virtual the portion I sat on was virtual for no reason it was there was no pandemic or anything it was just the way that they chose to deliver it and probably because you were weren't close Right. being so far away, but everybody had to do a presentation and audio. He did something which I found out really was something that like, and I know this is going to sound terrible and it's going to make it sound bad, but it's not. He did something that elementary school teachers were doing using a, um, a game, a virtual game that you could log in with your phone and play a game and answer questions. And so his task was to deliver a class on something. I don't even remember what the topic was. I should not. That would have been great if I did. But I think it did was a really good uh, job. excited delirium. I think it might've been too. Everybody had that same topic. Right. And so, um, most of it was just delivered and, um, you know, over zoom, which zoom wasn't even a thing back then. I don't even know if that's what it was, but use that program, delivered educational content in the normal way that I would do it today, probably right. Not too clever, just get on there, present a PowerPoint, talk into the mic. But Adiel used this game. Everybody in that room was just amazed because something different, right? Like this person's outside the box. And it seems so trivial now because of the advancements that have been made in the last few years with virtual and the backgrounds and the videos and the goofiness that you can have with your virtual stuff. But it was it was pretty groundbreaking at the time. And I remember that. Like, And so... I don't know. He, he did a really good job. And so at that time, I was in the administrative offices in Olathe um, as a training captain. And so we got to work together pretty quick. And then we just fell in love. It's <laughs> great. Yeah. It's a great love story. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like the notebook. Or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whatever, 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 yeah. whatever. There are several movies we could re reference here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we met last year here at the summit, and I fell in love with you too because um, your your suits are amazing and <laughs> you have great hair and you're just very distinguished. And um, But you gave 
uh, a lecture on epinephrine. And it blew me away. It totally blew me away. It made me look at, you know, I've always known that epinephrine is probably not the best thing to, to give to our cardiac arrest, especially when they're, you know, hypoxic and, you know, um, acidotic and we're not doing great CPR and, you know, all those things. But you really drove it home. Um, what drove you to that? So as I hear you uh, speak, uh, I thought about why I'm thinking about what I presented last year. And, and it, it's not necessarily anything earth shattering, but maybe it was the mode of delivery. I, I try and be very uh, deliberate with the sequence and the flow and the structure of it. So I try to build a story around epinephrine and uh, e everything found it on evidence. I, I always get nervous when somebody asks somebody else to present something from one day to the next or one week to the next. And they're like, sure. And they're like, wait a minute, how are you going to make that happen? You know, I yeah. usually ask for, for months in advance, just because I know that the audience is counting on you to present, you know, the, the most uh, current uh, uh, evidence and, and research regarding that. So uh, basically, I, I built this story of why we like epinephrine, because epinephrine does really good stuff for really sick people, like in profound shock, you know, and it has some of these uh, characteristics that we absolutely uh, love ab about epinephrine, uh, the vasoconstriction and the increase in, in, in coronary perfusion pressures, uh, the increase in contractile force, etc. But sometimes we... Uh, forget that all of these things also bring about ad adverse effects, you know, maybe the impairment in, in microvascular blood flow or formation of microthrombi, increased myocardial oxygen demand, and increase in, in, in irritability or instability with arrhythmias and stuff like that. So why we do it, but why we should be cautious of it right and and then i kind of took the participant into what the evidence says and 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 it is really about evidence and not prove we we can't prove that many things in this life are are, are certain you know some of right. those are just mathematical concept everything else is about building this body of evidence so we know for more than 150 years that epinephrine causes these effects and that's why we like it and that's why it's been in the literature for 150 years but you know we we go back to what we currently do for a cardiac arrest as far as epinephrine is concerned uh, probably to the 1960s where this trial on about 70 dogs you know, in different groups, got different interventions, and one of them was intracardiac, uh, one milligram of epinephrine, and it got their pulse back. And ever since then, we've adopted it, and we've utilized it. But until, I think, recently, we started paying attention to the long-term recovery and changed the chip that it's not about getting a pulse back. It's about neurologically intact survival. And of course, that's what we ha have been hearing recently. There, there's been study after study after study. And the one I like to highlight is the paramedic two, just because of the methods they used. 
And we know in research, a, in experimental research, as was this, a field experiment, a, a randomized control, double-blind, multi-centric study has a lot more weight than somebody's opinion, mm-hmm. than a study on dogs. You know, the, the randomization makes it, and the, and the multicentricness makes it uh, reproducible and, and, and general. It uh, solidifies that cause and effect relationship. So basically, I, I presented the results. And as everyone knows now, m- more neurological devastation on the epinephrine arm than in the uh, placebo or normal saline arm. But then I go into the other side of the coin. If this is so convincing and this study is so valuable, why have we not changed? And I think that the institutional answer was, well, the Brits took too long to give Epi. They Mm. took 21 minutes. And they have hung their hat on that because they took too long. And we think giving it earlier is the answer. We're not going to listen to that part. And and that's unfortunate. But fortunately, the the principal investigator um, did another trial. And basically, it says, yes, if you give epi earlier, you have better results. But if you give normal saline earlier, you have better results as well. So it's not about whether we give epi earlier. It's the time that somebody has spent in their cardiac arrest. If you wait longer for these interventions, they're not going to work. So yeah, epi seems to work better earlier, but so does normal saline. So that's what I try and highlight. And maybe that's why framing it that way, it caught the attention, you know, of of a few people. (laughs) I think more than a few people. (laughs) I think people are sitting in the audience going, Oh man, I never want to give this again. Yeah, you know, um, I know that's how I felt. You know, um, when when you were talking, and but you know, we are bound to our protocols, right? So, how do we how do we combat that when we when we know that this evidence is out there and it's causing neurological devastation in our patients, and we're just not hanging our hat on ROSC, we're wanting to go that that next step of neurological intact survival. I mean, how do we, how do we combat that, Kev? I, you know, what do you do in, in, you know, in Lawrence? Well, essentially the medical director is going to be the one who allows for anything to be a change. We know that there's organizations across the country that are super progressive, but they've been progressive for since the 1960s, right? And right. so um, we've got Wake County in North Carolina, Davies County in mm-hmm. um, Florida with Dr. Ann Tevy. We've got uh, Dr. Miramontes in San Antonio. We've got these doctors who are doing something different um, and not doing that standard dose of one milligram. Maybe there is one milligram in there. It's just delivered over time. It's delivered intramuscularly. Muscularly. Um, so there's... You have to get your medical director on board to listen to what we're talking about, right? Medical directors are busy because they're not just medical directors sitting in an office in most places. They're 
working in the hospitals, they're out running calls, they're doing things that run a system. And so they're not always privy to the information that we're sitting here talking about in the pre-hospital setting. Because usually, I would venture to guess that a majority of medical directors across the country are um, internal medicine doctors or they're family care physicians, they might be a dentist, um, that are making these decisions on what they learned in medical school, whether it was five years ago or 50 years ago. So education, I think, has to be there with solid evidence, with citations like like Audiel uses. Keeping that conversation going, don't just we have to be um, thorns in people's sides about it, which is what ACR has been um, in some people's sides, maybe bigger bigger ones than others, and um, it's just a continual nagging to talk about it. Um, it is unfortunate that um, that a drug was used on a, a beagle, I think, and um, <laughs> and we use that same dose forever and ever and ever and and we know better um you know i'm hopeful that you know we have a new medical director who's learning um he's he's willing to listen that's the best part um sometimes you just have to make a change and sometimes you're in western kansas like that you know, that's the state that adiel and i are in that those medical directors just don't have the ability to be educated um, for no other reason than they're just not in a spot that's close they don't know any better they don't understand what it talks to be it talks about being board certified em so it's just the constant nagging of reminding people that there's something other than that out there. And, you know, we ran through this, um, this is a little off the subject, but we talked about this yesterday, you know, with our, our numbers in LD, at LDCFM, our numbers took a dip and we have to do that reminding of the people like, why, why are we dipping? It's, we got comfortable, but now we've not educated to the performance that we did in 2018. We have to reeducate mm -hmm. to remind people. Now people, um, in our organization, they they didn't question what we taught them in 2018 because it was new to the point where they the only question they had was, am I going to do this because I've been doing this for so long or I just graduated school? They, it was about change. It wasn't about challenging the clinical side of it because we weren't there. Now I've got people wanting to have arguments. Sometimes they're inappropriate, sometimes they're appropriate, but they're wanting to have arguments because they want to know the science. And so that's how we've been delivering it. This is a, a shorter, we, we know what we're doing. We know the method. We know the um, the order in which we're going to do. We know the algorithm. But now they want to go beyond the algorithm and they want to learn why we're talking about delaying epi, why we're talking mm -hmm. about delaying um, defibrillation. They want to know the why. In the past, it wasn't really clinically why. It was just procedurally why. And now, it's, and now we have to talk to the clinical. And so the clinical portion would... Else talked about for two years, and not only here is the epi part portion, and it's a buzz across the pre-hospital um, platform and AEMSP. It's a conversation probably in every other you know topic, and there's a lot of research around it. But we just can't get those folks who make those produce the literature to make those changes in the public way, and it's because of the trials, and you know, they are happening in other in other countries. We just we're just ran differently. Yeah. I, um it was interesting that you you brought up in your in your lecture about all these different agencies that are are doing different things, um, and none of this is like supported, right? But we're doing something different because of the body of evidence that we have currently. Um, Doctor Antevi talked about that. You have all these different agencies that are trying different things. But you have this one body that is making these recommendations on that, right? I, I believe it, it he, he hit on it, Dr. Antevi hit on that, that 
you know, are, are, are people that are doing, you know, pre-hospital EMS, you know, they should be making those recommendations, correct? What do you, what do you feel about that? Absolutely. I, I, I think that it will require a revolution, a revolution of, of thinking. So we have really smart people but probably not in emergency medicine. Maybe they're intensivists. And then we adopt the guidelines and we transfer them to the streets. I am not sure that that is the most appropriate thing to do. But it does. it will require a lot of work. If we want to start by addressing this, I think we need to start with ourselves. EMS is so fragmented. It's not like nursing, right? Nursing is so cohesive and they get stuff done at the community level, at the state level, at the federal level, while EMS is still busy fighting sometimes, right? Um, so I, I, I think that by addressing that fragmentation may be the first step. And then a call to action. It's like, why would we not develop, design, pre-hospital, guidelines, in, in this case for cardiac arrest. The, you know, the, these uh, not only brilliant but courageous medical directors uh, making changes uh, is not something to be taken lightly. They really believe in this, and they have said, you know what, at the very least, instead of one milligram every three to five minutes, let's decrease the dose. Let's increase the interval. Let's uh, infuse it in instead of bolusing it in, you know, and, and, and have uh, targets like diastolic blood pressure of 35. Let's drip in F epi until we get there and then we shut it off. Or if you're in the pre-hospital, let's drip in epi until we get 25 millimeters uh, uh, of, of mercury in, in their capnography and then we shut it off. Uh, or... Let's eliminate it from shockable rhythms. The science seems to point that it may be more valuable in non-shockable rhythms. I, I'd like to underscore all of this by saying what you just said, Billy, and we don't know, right? There is no body of evidence currently to support these new recommendations. But what we do know is that high-dose epi does not work. Five milligrams, ten milligrams, uh, and the current recommendation: one milligram every three to five minutes does not work. And when I say it does not work, I mean neurologically intact survival. So it seems like we need to make a change. Everybody is afraid to be the first, and I, I can understand that, especially in a litigious society where there is liability. So that's why I think. It makes these medical directors across the country, and you know, Kevin mentioned uh, those agencies. You know, uh, it makes it even more admirable that they would take a stand and say, "You know, I am not leading a bunch of technicians. These guys are clinicians. I'm going to give them the best evidence out there. I'm going to make some recommendations." And we will not blindly follow X, in, institution X. You know, they, they are making changes and differences in their communities that I hope 
once we become cohesive as EMS, would completely uh, transfer to, to other EMS uh, agencies. Yeah, I, I, I love the, the question and answer session that we had after your, your session. And, um, you know, we tend to take this protocol, you know, for cardiac arrest, and we try to fit it for everybody, you know, and, and you were kind of talking about that. And there's so many variables, you know, it's we're trying to take that square peg and shoving it in a, in a round hole and, and make it good for everybody. Um, you kind of talked about that, you know, um, you know, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. Um, and once again, I'll underscore all of this just by saying, so for right now, nobody really knows the ideal dose or the right deal or the ideal interval for epinephrine and cardiac arrest. But it is probably something that is specific to the rhythm, that is specific to the patient characteristics. That's all kinds of specific. So let's go with what we do know. And, and, and once again, we do know that the current guidelines are producing neurologically devastated people, right? So um, I, I, I think that's the bottom line. Can we develop a protocol for the 8 billion people in the world? Absolutely not. But can we develop something that more closely follows the science and not fit our patient to our protocol, but make our protocols flexible enough to be able to treat that patient so that we can give them the best opportunity for the best possible outcome? And, and I think the answer is yes. I mean, protocols cannot be black and white. And if we are going to believe that our people are clinicians and not just technicians, we should be allowing that. And, and I think these medical directors have listened to their people and have allowed their protocols to be flexible enough to treat patients individually. All of these uh, characteristics and, and the history and the physical, and it may very well be different, right? So that's kind of what I, I ended up with. There, there is a uh, formula by Dr. Leonard Cobb. You know, I love this. I yeah, love yeah, this formula. formula was good. I was, he but, said, "Oh, wait." He says at the beginning, "I'll share it to you, share it with you at the end." And I'm like, "Oh God!" <laughs> right? like, but at the end, you're just like, "Yeah." That was worth waiting for. It was anyway, super so, powerful, though. Yeah. Super powerful. So now yeah, we're making people, we're building yeah. up the anticipation. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> hope everybody so, enjoys it. So, you know, uh, Dr. Leonard Cobb was the co-founder of Seattle Medic One Paramedic Program. And, and he has a survival formula. And it has multipliers in front of it, right? I, I don't know where he got the multipliers from. But he says, you know, uh, quality telephone CPR, you multiply times 50. And... The quality of the EM, uh, of the re initial response, you multiply it times 50. But then when you get to EMS, it's only multiplied times 5. And then when you get to hospital care, it's only multiplied times 0.5. So I think Dr. Cobb, what he meant was it's about the initial response. It's about what we've been talking about these last two days at, at the Zoll Summit. Quality compressions 
early defibrillation. But then he has a multiplier of 500 in there, and that's patient characteristics. And I think that that can mean anything from this patient is going to die regardless of how fast the response is. Yeah. And maybe these other ones, with those early inter interventions, we've extended that electrical phase, uh, that circulatory phase, to give these uh, responses from, from EMS and, and in the hospital opportunities to work. Uh, I, I, I reached out, you know, uh, to, to somebody that worked under Dr. Cobb, and I said, look, uh, I'd like to cite this in, in, in my uh, presentation. Can you point me to the publication? And he said, I don't know that it was ever published. We have it in a whiteboard or, or in a, I don't know if it was a chalkboard or something, uh, down here. And, and uh, it, it was uh, really eye-opening, and, and like you guys have mentioned, I think it drives home the point of how we should be practicing medicine by, by taking all of these um, variables uh, in, into account, especially the patient characteristics part, but knowing that by the time we get there as EMS and by the time we take them to the hospital, it may very well be too late. Yeah. So it's about those initial interventions and how we get more of a community involvement and how we get more defibrillators out there and, and just get people to act. I, I, I think uh, a, a, as a systems approach, EMS and, and uh, hospital and recovery, they do great stuff. But once again, they or we are dependent on people acting initially so that they can prepare that patient by intervening so that we can do our job. Somebody else has to do their jobs first, starting with a recognition, you know, just recognizing it, you know, intervening. Dispatchers, unsung heroes, uh, you know, that telephone CPR piece. And then we can get there. And, and we don't get there with a syringe of medications in one hand and an endotracheal tube in the other. We get there and we do good BLS. That's going to be the foundation. That's the two scientific principles after recognition, good quality compressions and early defibrillation. And then you get there with that pit crew CPR approach and you know everybody knows their job. Everybody knows that what jobs don't belong to them. And everybody trusts that whoever is doing that other job that doesn't belong to you is gonna do it with quality. And the foundation, training. We, we can't, Get our providers to go to an eight-hour class every month. You know, the, the education science is becoming clearer as well. It's going to be about the low-dose, high-frequency. 10, 15 minutes to review a concept or two. You do this at the beginning of every shift or at least once a week or whatever training schedule you uh, uh, come up with. But don't wait for that formal training from the training chief, from the training captain. No, at the firehouse, at the EMS station. Hey, let, let, let's, let's synchronize our, our compressions to this metronome. Some people are still not using metronomes. And, and it takes a while to, to get used to it. You know, all of that, all of that stuff, just a lower dose, 
to keep the attention, to make it deliberate and a high frequency. Do it regularly. Do it continuously. Yeah, that's that's great stuff. It really drives home, you know, our 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 core beliefs in ACR, which is, you know, we talk about a lot about optimizing the patient, but there's two other factors there, right? Optimizing the system and then optimizing the community to be an ally to help us save these people, to have them neurologically intact. It's such an important um, thing. And we had Captain Josh Smith talk about that down here and uh, at, the, at the summit. And we had a um, telecommunicator supervisor, Esther Click, um, from out in Richland area, Washington, uh, do a great presentation on telemedicine and, and or not telemedicine, but uh, telecommunication, CPR, and how important that is for early recognition and getting people on the chest. That is going to give us you know, that bridge to, to get them because we know that, you know, that multiplier, you said, you know, telecommunication was like, or yeah, telecommunicators right. were right, right up there. Absolutely. That was huge. And even Dr. Intevi talked about that yesterday, how, you know, um, you know, telephone CPR is one of the most important things that we can do to save these people's lives. And as that multiplier goes down, you know, I'm sorry, fire folks. <laughs> We're not as, as hot as you think we are. You know, we have to have some help for sure. I agree. Well, you know, this is kind of off the subject completely, but even even when we were doing some of our scenarios yesterday, to go back on the metronome thing, um, you know, some of these monitors, I think majority of the monitors either have the ability to produce a metronome, at least the ones we use, even when people have that metronome going, they're still not going with the pace. And so it takes somebody to, t- to tap them on the shoulder and say, listen for the metronome, because they may not be used to it for whatever reason, right? Like, I would imagine that the people here are using Zoll products, but that doesn't always mean that, right? And so uh, with somebody yesterday doing it like super fast CPR, even though we've been talking about it. Yeah. Right. And it's about performance anxiety, right? Like she's in front of a bunch of people she doesn't know doing this, and she just is trying to do quality CPR and... Um, she was doing spinal massage as Terry Kehoe always <laughs> says. Uh, she was getting after it, but it was like really fast. And I'm sitting there thinking, there's a metronome, you know, right. and we're not even paying attention to that. So those attention to details and that's what I keep saying. Cardiac arrest um, performances are really surgical. We're not cutting anything, but we have to be very surgical about them. And timing is everything. And um, we do stand around in our program a lot more than we ever did because we're waiting for things to happen organically without using as much epinephrine. We're waiting things to happen organically. And there's a lot of critical thinking happening, but we have to think out loud. And um, people don't like to do that because they're afraid they're going to look foolish. Like coach girls softball. We have probably one of the quietest teams in the country. And we don't perform well when we're quiet because balls get passed. They're not having a conversation about what's happening before. Every single girl on that field plays softball, whether they're on defense or their offense, they're on your team or they're not. They know what you need to do to beat them to the bag. But we still have to perform in front of them. It's okay if they know our play. We still have to beat them. Everybody knows that that girl from first has got to go to second. If we don't remind those girls to throw the ball to second, that girl's going to get there safe. But if we stand there with our hands in our pockets and we don't communicate, we're waiting for entitled to be this before we shock. We're going to wait this much longer until epinephrine is delivered. Standing around for 30 minutes and we're not communicating. Even though we all think we know the game plan, we're just going to have failure. Yeah, that's a great point, Kevin. Um, You know, um, you had another 
talk today about um, post-ROSC care, and it was amazing, amazing stuff. Um, I want to kind of save that for uh, our next podcast because I want to give that a lot of time, you know, with you because it was it was really, really good stuff. Um, and we can, we can definitely set up another, another time to talk to you because you're a wealth of knowledge, but, uh, you know, that hits home, um, hard with me because when we started ACR, we started seeing a lot of ROSC and people were like caught off guard by that. And we're like, what do we do now? (laughs) You know? And, um, you know, just some of the, the highlights, you know, everything we do has, has either positive or negative consequences, right? You know, um, everything we do, even during the resuscitation phase and, you know, even before that, you know, the recognition, all of it, all of it matters. And it, it doesn't stop. Even after we get ROSC, we just can't go, Whew, all right, we did it. Absolutely. You and know, I, and I think what you just said and what Kevin just said is now we have two things happening people standing around, and people not being prepared to get a pulse back, right? So I I think that may be the first answer. What do you do when you're just standing around? Hey, the H's and T's, the history and physical, go talk to somebody. What happened? Let's try and figure out what what occurred here because – now we have changed the mind frame, right? Now we're doing CPR expecting to get ROSC, not expecting that the patient, that the code's going to be called, that the patient's going to mm-hmm. remain dead. So I, I, I think it's important that we start to uh, think about that. What is the best care? What are we going to do when, when we get ROSC? It's not as simple as, we put them on an ambulance and we take them to the hospital. Once again, we are doing pre-work. The f- people that got there first are doing pre-work for us. We're doing pre-work for the hospital. The emergency department's pre- doing pre-work for the intensivist. They're doing pre-work for the recovery uh, phase. You know, uh, all the the therapy, everything that you know, the 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 recovery. Uh, that recovery involves. So uh, definitely it it is of the utmost importance that now we do CPR expecting to get ROS. You mentioned some people (laughs) would uh, uh, be surprised by that. Same thing with CPR induced consciousness, right? You're doing CPR so well that while somebody is dead and in B-fib, you are perfusing the brain to the point that the patient starts to react and they open their eyes you know, and they start to maybe even moan, maybe even talk. I mean, that is amazing. When had we seen that before? So uh, the only thing I have to say about that is if you have CPR-induced consciousness, you need to get ketamine on board. You need to uh, treat the patient because they are probably feeling pain as interesting as that sounds somebody being dead and and feel feeling pain well you're perfusing the brain enough to elicit these uh physiological reactions because mm. your cpr is so good so early your defibrillation is timely and that bundle of care comes 
comes together. So yeah, that's yeah. good stuff. And it, we'll definitely do a follow-up uh, with you, uh, a podcast just dedicated to that because there's so much information there that I want to give it its its time and have you speak on that because it is amazing. Um, I want to thank you so very much for taking the time uh, not only to come down here and, and talk and, and educate people and enlighten them and hopefully inspire them. Uh, you definitely inspire me and hopefully you're inspiring our listeners that listen to this podcast. Uh, thank you for taking the time to sit down with us, Adio. It's my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. It's always great hanging around you and of course with Kevin and Viva Mexico cabrones. <laughs> yeah. Anything you want to add, dude? Well, I I am surprised that we didn't make any um, Mexico related um, inferences in this whole entire thing because Adiel is so proud of his heritage as he should be, and the work that he does in the Latin communities. Uh, he probably I don't know I hate to say this because this isn't the truth, and people hold that stuff against people, but he doesn't spend as much time in the United States as he does in Latin America, but he does spend a lot of time. And I will tell you, I've met people who I have no idea. You just, uh, the Latin culture, when they're very proud of, and they wear their uniforms to a lot of conferences. And there were conferences maybe five years ago that I was at in Nashville. Saw these two guys in the shop at the Nashville Predators. They were buying some hockey stuff. And so I said, hey, we struck up a conversation as best I could in my terrible Spanish and, and their terrible English. And I brought up Adiel's name, and these guys' eyes lit up like it was, uh, I don't even know, Brad Pitt. <laughs> so, uh, but no, brother, it was good to, good to do this with you. It's been a great week as always, and good to hang out with you, and thanks, and we'll do this again. Absolutely. Awesome, awesome. Um, again, uh, we'll have uh, stuff in the show notes about Adiel and, um, you know, his information and, and contact information. If you have any questions, you can reach out to him, email him, or you can email myself or, or Joe Powell or, or Kevin here. Uh, thanks again for listening to ACR Moonshot. This podcast and its postings are for general informational purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, medical direction, medical oversight, or medical advice. No doctor-patient or doctor-healthcare provider relationship is formed. This podcast and advanced cardiac resuscitation are not a substitute for any local, state, or federal policies, protocols, or treatment guidelines. The views and opinions of the hosts and the guests of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the view or policy of advanced cardiac resuscitation, its officers, members, or member agencies. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by advanced cardiac resuscitation. Thank you for listening to ACR Moonshot, the Advanced Cardiac Resuscitation Podcast. <laughs>